Man, if I had a dime for every time this subject is just dropped into a random political conversation. You're talking about uh, some kind of element of politics that is totally unrelated to it. Let's say you're you're just talking about who's going to win the Senate, right? Which party's going to win the Senate? Which party's going to win the House? Which party's going to win the presidency? A certain issue here, a certain issue there. Someone's eventually going to say the word gerrymandering. Now, many of you might know what gerrymandering is. I will almost guarantee you that very, very few people know what the term gerrymandering came from, which you will learn in this podcast, but we are going to learn that and so much more in this interview. Before we get started, though, I want to remind you that the way you can support this show is by heading over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. If you like me going out and and interviewing these folks, well, uh, I'm just going to tell you this. I don't do it. My senior advisor, Tamar, she does it. She is out here on the internet finding these folks for you. If you've enjoyed this expansion of the PX3 program, well, head on over there and and help me pay Tamar. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Let's go ahead and get into the interview. My guest today is Nicholas Geddert. He is an assistant professor of political science at Virginia Tech, and he is going to walk us through the science of something that I believe is oft talked about, but rarely as understood as I think it should be, and that is gerrymandering and districting. But first, let me welcome Nicholas to the show. Thank you so much for taking time. Thank you for talking to me. All right. So let's go ahead and just get a baseline definition. What is gerrymandering? So I would define gerrymandering broadly as the drawing of legislative districts in order to achieve some sort of political goal. Uh, Most frequently in the sort of modern era, we talk about partisan gerrymandering, which would be one party drawing legislative districts, uh, could be congressional districts, could be state legislative districts, uh, in order to maximize the number of seats that their party will win. And I guess from that definition, uh, uh, that is only only one phase of it. What would be some of the lesser known elements of gerrymandering? So uh, if you mean other types of gerrymandering. Yes, exactly. So. Uh, sure, sure. So, for instance, uh, one type of gerrymandering that has been very important throughout American history would be racial gerrymandering. That would be drawing districts that were either designed to elect Uh, a member of a particular racial minority, uh, or were designed to exclude from representation uh, a racial minority. And and those would be distinct from party politics, because uh, usually, you know, counting on certain demographics to come out to the polls uh, and and obviously on racial lines is something that is uh, fairly old, right? Sure. So in many states, um, racial gerrymandering and partisan gerrymandering can overlap significantly. Uh, they have very different like legal definitions. 
So what would be considered an illegal racial gerrymander uh, has very different criteria than what would be considered an illegal partisan gerrymander. And of course, uh, the recent Supreme Court decision this past summer said that, well, on a federal level, there actually is no such thing as an illegal partisan gerrymander. This differs from state to state, um, but definitely the federal courts have been much more involved in litigating racial gerrymanders than partisan gerrymanders. How far does this go back? Like, when when do we start to look at at these kinds of like district fiddling as as something that has become a problem? Oh, I think it's it, it goes back to the you know the founding of the the ratification of the Constitution and the first congressional elections in the 1780s. I think there's evidence that, for instance, James Madison. Uh, was involved in gerrymandering the Virginia legislature in order to draw a district for himself. Uh, <laughs> the actual term gerrymandering was coined in 1812 uh, as the result of a uh, district drawn by Massachusetts Governor Elbridge Gerry uh, that looked like a salamander in the minds of some people. So those <laughs> those names, Elbridge Gerry and salamander, got kind of joined to become the term gerrymandering. Oh, my God. That's that's awesome. I never knew that salamander was involved in that. That yeah. is that is a, yeah, that is a great it's, factoid. It's the, it's the 1812 governor's name combined with a district that looked like a salamander. There's a famous <laughs> political cartoon where the newspaper draws an image of a salamander over this particular district that was drawn in Massachusetts. Damn. I'll tell you, I don't even know if I could think of what a salamander looks like right off the top of my head, but but uh, good on him. That that's that's crazy. So this is this is about a, 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 as old of a of a problem as as our country. Then, if our founding fathers are the first ones to do it, so absolutely, um, definitely, there are uh, sort of the, as a result of new technology, and of course, as a result of increased party polarization. Many people think that the problem of partisan gerrymandering has gotten much worse in the last 20 years or so. Uh, but certainly it's been on the minds of politicians since districts have been drawn. So let, let's go back to that, that inflection point 20 years ago. Uh, uh, what is the evidence for people to say, all right, this was a thing that happened every once in a while. Certainly it's been a tool in the toolbox of politicians for as long as we can remember. But we have hit a point where now it is a far bigger and more insidious problem. I actually think the moment at which people believe that this was a problem that was really uh, infiltrating the core of American democracy uh, occurred just seven years ago following the 2012 congressional elections, uh, where Democrats won the majority of congressional votes, but Republicans won a majority of congressional seats. So you had kind of the same, uh, the same anti-majoritarian, anti-democratic outcome that we saw in the 2016 presidential election play out in the Electoral College, but this time play out, um, play out on the field of the House of Representatives. And a lot of people attributed this to a series of Republican gerrymanders of several large states uh, after the 2010 cycle. So of course, in 2010, you had a big Republican wave election. You had Republicans yeah. retake control of Congress. But even more importantly, you had Republicans win a lot of governorships and retake control of a lot of state legislatures. And it's these state legislatures that were able to draw the lines in these states after the 2010 census. So whereas in past decades, you had partisan gerrymandering occurring in many states, uh, 
in, in many different decades. In most cases, I think a lot of people perceived that this sort of, you know, Democratic gerrymanders canceled out Republican gerrymanders. And the gerrymanders frequently weren't very effective. You know, a lot of times they would devolve into what we might call a dummy mander in which, you know, the actual political trends change in the middle of the decade yeah. and the gerrymander backfires on the party that, that drew the lines. Um, I think in 2010, leading into the 2012 elections, uh, for the first time in, well, a very long time, you saw Republicans consistently have control over many of the important states and actually be able to use modern technology, computer technology, to draw very exact districts to advantage their party consistently. And perhaps this really put them over the edge in winning the, the congressional majority. Now, I don't know if I would actually say that this was instrumental in Republicans winning the congressional majority in 2012, but I think this was kind of the conventional wisdom surrounding this issue. Yeah, you know, it is an interesting conversation because if you wanted to immediately sort of snap back at that argument, you might say that seven years ago is also when we begin to see an even further hardening of the dynamic that Democrats own big cities and Republicans own the rural districts, which is something that we just saw on display last night Well, when we're recording this, which is after the North Carolina nine election. Uh, uh, and that it wouldn't it, it would almost become the norm that you know, there'd be more votes in certain districts that house big cities, while the rural districts, which certainly have less people, would wind up voting in Republican representatives. Right. So simultaneous to Republicans winning control of state legislatures, especially in southern states and in 2010 in Midwestern states, you also have this trend where Democrats are becoming complete, uh, increasingly concentrated in cities. And this makes it easier to uh, what in the you know sort of gerrymandering parlance we would call pack a district yeah. filled with Democrats. Right. So if you put all the Democrats into one district, and then you spread the Republicans more evenly around in several districts, it's much easier for Republicans to win those several districts while the Democrats are kind of wasting their votes uh, being packed in one district or in a couple of urban districts. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, so so this is when, uh, so this is a fairly recent phenomenon because, I mean, I do know that gerrymandering has been something that I can remember being talked about for as long as I've been interested in politics, but uh, if you're if you're saying that this is really seven years ago that it kind of hits this inflection point or at least a crisis point uh, that would largely be on the Democratic side saying that, hey, look, we just don't have a fair shot at the House of Representatives because of how these things are being drawn. Right. I think that was definitely the perception uh, around 2012. Now, it should be noted that the Democrats did win control of the House of Representatives in 2018. So gerrymandering yeah. certainly did not make it impossible for Democrats to win the majority in the House. Um, and I actually think the House of Representatives remains the, more, the most responsive of our national institutions to swings in, uh, in public opinion. It's actually the most responsive uh, in a way that would enable both parties to win control in the sort of wave election scenario uh, compared to some of the anti-democratic outcomes that we've seen in the U.S. Senate or in the presidential elections, or of course in the Supreme Court. And that's because they are either statewide or a series of statewide races like it is for the presidency. Yes, yeah, certainly for the presidency. Uh, and of course the, the massive um, disparity in the number of senators that it, uh, sorry, the, the population of each state, which still enables them to elect uh, two senators per state. The fact that 
California, with you know 70 times the population of some smaller states, still elects only two senators, uh, is going to lead to uh, a much more likely anti-democratic outcome than in the case of House districts, which even when they are gerrymandered, still are much smaller than Senate districts and are roughly equal population across the country. Yeah, because there there are so many more in, let's say, New York City uh, that they are reasonably talking to at least within a stone's throw of of another district that might be in a less populous part of the country, right? Right. And there still are a number of areas that potentially can swing from one party to another uh, in a wave election environment like 2018 that both parties have a reasonable chance to win a majority of the House. All right, so let's talk about going forward. What has been some of the response to uh, the alarm bells being sounded in 2012? Right, so there have been two major threads of response. Um, Actually, I guess you could say there have been three threads of response. The first thread of response is to bring litigation in the federal court system, to argue that partisan gerrymandering is a violation of the United States Constitution. Most often, the allegation was this would be a violation of the Equal Protection Clause. Um, Other suits have alleged that this is a violation of the First Amendment right to free association, or there have been more exotic constitutional claims made. Um, There were, in the last just couple years, federal lawsuits brought in Wisconsin, in North Carolina, in Ohio, in Maryland, in Pennsylvania, and in Michigan. Um, And in almost all of those cases, a lower court struck down the map under some sort of constitutional theory. But as a result of a Supreme Court decision just this past summer, a five to four decision written by Chief Justice Roberts, uh, the Supreme Court said that actually the federal courts should not be in the business of litigating partisan gerrymandering at all. Uh, It's what uh, would be referred to as a non-justiciable issue uh, is what the court decided. Basically that the courts are not the competent branch to be deciding what a fair gerrymander is, what a fair partisan map is and is not. Um, So all of those maps that were struck down at the lower court level, um, those decisions were reversed, and all of those maps are still in place. So just as of a couple months ago, that avenue has kind of been foreclosed, uh, at least for the foreseeable future, unless we see a kind of, you know, radical change in the composition of the Supreme Court. So the second avenue would be litigation in the state courts. So you don't bring litigation in the federal courts alleging a federal constitutional violation. You allege that in your particular state, your particular state's constitution has been violated. Um, And this was actually successful in Pennsylvania in uh, 2018. So Pennsylvania had a Republican gerrymander of their congressional map, which elected a very durable Republican majority. And this map was struck down by a state Supreme Court, and Pennsylvania had to redraw their map. And in 2018, the new map yielded a nine to nine tie in the delegation. This was successful where federal litigation was not successful uh, because Pennsylvania has a clause in their state constitution guaranteeing that elections must be free and equal. And this clause does not exist in the federal constitution, in our national constitution. So the Pennsylvania Supreme Court held that even if there is no clause in the federal constitution that outlaws partisan gerrymandering, 
The state constitution in Pennsylvania is different. The state constitution is unique, and that particular clause makes partisan gerrymandering unconstitutional just in that state. Um, so there have been a number of uh, suits filed in state court as a result of that decision. That decision doesn't really come under the jurisdiction of the federal Supreme Court at all, because it's just based in the state constitution. Um, so just in the last week, we actually saw another one of these suits be successful, uh, be successfully struck down in the North Carolina Supreme Court under a very similar uh, clause of their state constitution. I believe it's something like a free and fair elections clause. So their state legislative maps, uh, Republican gerrymander of their state legislative maps was struck down just last week. Also, probably doesn't fall within the jurisdiction of the United States Supreme Court, so they will almost certainly have to redraw their uh, state legislative maps. So that's the second avenue that's been slightly more successful. And, and that, uh, and I think there. Sure. Sorry. Uh, so, so that would be something that the the Supreme Court saying that we are not the governing body has now opened up that the 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 state by state more local option. Right. So certainly. Um, parties could have filed in state court all along. They were yeah. free to file in state court all along. And in the past, there have been partisan gerrymanders struck down in state courts. Uh, I believe, you know, more than a decade ago, there was a partisan gerrymander of Colorado that was struck down under their state constitution. Um, but what's important here is that the federal Supreme Court uh, has completely foreclosed the possibility of bringing cases in the federal court system, and that leaves now only the state court system as a um, sort of litigation-oriented way of addressing this issue. Uh, okay, so let me ask you a very basic question. Uh, where is, at least in terms of how the courts have looked at it, the line for a fair district drawing, like, should they all just be boxes? Should we be taking into account how many registered Republicans and Democrats are in each district and trying to make it competitive district by district? Like, what is that line? That's what I've always kind of wondered is, is sure, we know uh, if it's a red team versus blue team thing, whether or not we're winning and that's unfair or, or, or that's fair or we're not winning and that's unfair. But I've never really been able to wrap my head around, like, what, what is the platonic ideal of exactly what every dis district should look like? Right. So this is really the question that the court has wrestled with over the last 30 years or so. Um, and they never came up with a satisfactory answer. And this is really the reason why Chief Justice Roberts decided that the courts should not be in the business, at least the federal courts, should not be in the business of deciding these cases at all. Uh, if you look at the legal arguments for you know, what should be the measurement, what should be the threshold beyond which a map is judged unconstitutional. If you look at the arguments made in different cases, even just different cases that have come up in the last couple years, the arguments there are really different from each other. So for instance, in Wisconsin, the plaintiffs alleged that you should look at the amount of bias in the resulting uh, delegation that's elected compared to the number of votes that each party won. There was this measurement called the efficiency gap that was used as kind of the standard under which we should measure bias. And if that threshold exceeds a certain percentage or exceeds a certain number of seats, then you should rule a map to be presumptively unconstitutional unless the defendants have some sort of really good defense for it. That's one possible test, right? 
There was a map in Maryland that alleged that basically the test should be we can we should look at one particular district and ask if uh, an undue number of uh, undue number of residents were moved in and out of that district in order to change the partisan makeup of that district. Uh, there was a test that was used in the actual Pennsylvania state case. The court used a test that looked at the compactness of the districts, the actual geometric shape of the districts compared to, for instance, computer simulated districts. Or they looked at the number of times that counties or municipalities were split up. Um, and then there's certainly been this trend in the most recent cases. And this was the sort of logic that the North Carolina State Court used just in last week's case, that basically we should do a lot of simulations of other possible maps, and we should ask, is the current map an outlier compared to these randomly simulated maps? Uh, that's kind of the, the trend that was most popular in the cases that were just decided in the last couple of months. So I think that this is a really, kind of a really problematic issue for the plaintiffs in these cases. I think it actually is really difficult to say there is one particular test or one particular even normative judgment that we can make about whether a map is fair or not. I think there's a lot of different interlocking pieces and a lot of different trade-offs that even people who are trying to draw fair maps uh, need to make. Uh, and that would actually lead me into the third way that uh, people have been trying to address this issue, mm -hmm. and that is to fundamentally change the process, right? Not to judge the outcome of the maps, but to change the process by which maps are drawn. And there I think we've actually seen the most success in the last couple years. Um, so traditionally, maps are drawn by the state legislatures themselves uh, under the sort of normal bill drafting process. You know, both houses of the state legislature have to pass a map and then it gets signed by the governor. Uh, that has been the process in place in most states throughout most of our history. Um, but increasingly, a number of states have been choosing to move away from that process and adopt a more nonpartisan or at least bipartisan commission approach um, that would maybe incorporate certain standards of fairness. But really, the important thing is who is drawing the map. You appoint nonpartisan uh, people or at least a collection of people evenly balanced between the parties and including some independents or some people who are at least putatively nonpartisan, um, and they draw the map completely separate from the state legislative process. That's fascinating, because theoretically, the idea that you have a district is that you would have one representative who serves a common, uh, a general baseline common need of that district, right? Like, it kind of feels like, we, we've right. gotten so far down the route of remedies that we've kind of forgotten wh what we're trying to cure, <laughs> which is like. Well, so so these redistricting, these redistricting commissions. Yeah, they are still drawing single member district maps. Yes. For the state legislature and for Congress. So these commissions, their sole purpose, the sole reason they're appointed is to draw these maps that will then be used in elections for the state legislature or for Congress. Yeah. Which is, I think, is smart. I think it's good. I mean, we should be thinking more and more about exactly what these districts are and get them a little farther beyond whether or not they are set up to benefit one party or another, right? I mean, that, that, would, be, that would make the most sense, at least in my mind. Yes, and I, I think that's definitely been the trend. Uh, just in 2018, we saw referendums uh, on the ballot in four different states, 
all of these referendums succeeded in moving their state redistricting process toward a more nonpartisan commission, um, including a referendum in Utah, right? A referendum in Utah uh, narrowly passed that would take the redistricting process out of the hands of the presumably Republican-controlled state legislature into a more bipartisan or nonpartisan commission. So even in a state as heavily Republican as Utah, there was successfully enough pressure um, or successfully enough controversy over this gerrymandering process that a majority of voters were willing to say we shouldn't have our Republican legislators able to have complete control over this process anymore. So this is an element of of the gerrymandering, conver gerrymandering conversation that I've long thought, but the more we've talked here today, uh, the more I think there's even more facets to it. I, I have this theory that part of the reason why we talk so much more about it, and as you pointed out, this has been uh, an explosive topic just in the last decade, is because we have such expanded uh, media now, and we have so many ways that we can show and illustrate what these problems are in such a rapid way that this is just real in a way that it was never really going to be in an era of uh, national news and newspapers. It, it just that uh, things did not move as fast. You could not captivate people on what is essentially a state legislature issue, which is hard to follow if you're not in that state and probably boring even if you're in that state. I think that's true. Um, I do think people that seriously follow politics are more tend to be more data savvy in yeah. this era than they used to be. Um, I also think that like just the process and the notion of gerrymandering itself seems so fundamentally anti-democratic. Just on its face, the process just seems wrong. Um, that that's something that's going to get people up in arms, kind of regardless of what the real effects of uh, a particular state map are. It does seem very old world party bossy, right? You know, like chomping yes. on a cigar, making sure that the returns come in the way that they want to by hook or by crook. Yes. Uh, but then also, I guess the other side that you were mentioning is that this is also a data driven, uh, uh, benefited by data on the gerrymandering side, on the, the side of the people doing this, because now they're not just trying to, to you know, take, uh, I guess, less educated guesses as to where Republicans live based on uh, probably their own voter registrations and, and uh, uh, knowledge of who's going to the polls, but rather they can now do highly targeted street by street uh, uh, analysis of this on a, on a level that really we hadn't seen pre even like Facebook. Yeah, so certainly the, the computer technology to draw districts has existed for at least 30 years. Um, the computing power has massively increased, and it's also definitely been aided by the fact that um, people's partisanship in our current era is just much more predictable than it used to be, right? If you see that a district voted 60% Democratic 10 years ago, well, could you reliably say it was going to vote 60% Democratic 10 years in the future? Certainly, in an earlier era, in an earlier era, you could not say that with any certainty. But we've seen partisanship harden, partisanship really ossify just in the last uh, decade or so, such that um, with the exception of wave elections like 2018, uh, you can pretty predictably say that a certain region is going to be reliably Democratic or reliably Republican.
So this is also just a a, a hardening of part, uh, partisanship that makes drawing the lines a lot easier. I think that's definitely true. Yeah, it makes the, it makes the districts much more predictable. Um, I do think that on a national level, right, we still see national waves, changes in public opinion happening with at least the same frequency and magnitude that we did in the past. So we've seen Democratic wave elections in 2006 and 2008 and 2018. We saw Republican wave elections in 2010 and 2014. So on a national scale, we don't actually usually see an evenly balanced electorate. And a lot of these map makers, they kind of assume that the electorate is going to be evenly balanced when they draw the map. So it still leads to some what we might call dummy manders and some unexpected results. And it still facilitates results like the Democrats fairly easily winning the majority of the House of Representatives in 2018, despite the presence of so many of these Republican gerrymanders. Well, uh, absolutely fascinating. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Uh, my guest has been Nicholas Geddard. He is an assistant professor of political science at uh, Virginia Tech. Is there anywhere on uh, online or, or uh, other places where people can uh, follow up with some of your work? Well, so certainly they can. I mean, I have a, I have a profile on my uh, faculty webpage uh, at the Virginia Tech Department of Political Science. Um, I actually am uh, in the process of publishing a book on this topic. Uh, I don't expect it will come out for another year or so. Um, <laughs> but, you know, if, if people check Amazon in, you know, maybe a year to 15 months, they, they should be able to find it. Uh, so I know that that's, you know, they certainly won't remember, um, but hopefully – uh, they will, you know, at least a few people will check it out. Now, I'm sure it'll be available to pre-order before that, but we will know that when that awesome book on gerrymandering comes out, that they will say, oh, that's that guy I heard on PX3. I definitely got to go cop that. Uh, well, well, thank you, thank you, thank you so much, uh, Nicholas, for taking your time. Okay, thank you. I enjoyed it. Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>